Welcome to a special episode of the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. This is the second of two episodes of the podcast, exploring the amazing depth and breadth of work being done by some of the Sackler Institute's partners, a group that runs the gamut of actors within the nutrition community, from the food industry to nutrition scientists to policymakers and advocates. Writing in the 4th century BCE, Hippocrates, the greatest physician of the ancient world, said, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. This is a very old idea, but one that many on the cutting edge of nutrition science today are taking more and more seriously. The line between the study of nutrition and the study of medicine is starting to blur as we're understanding that health is not so much the absence of discrete diseases as it is an equilibrium of the body's complex web of biological and chemical interactions, all of which require good nutrition in order to function properly. Here's Rowena Pullen, Vice President for Research and Development of the Supplements Franchise within the Consumer Healthcare Division of Pfizer. People are seeing their healthcare as a spectrum. Um, so it starts, and I think more and more people are focused on how can I put myself in the best possible position to minimize future challenges that may happen to my health. And that starts with you know, having a good diet, exercising, you know, all those kind of sensible things. Nutrition is, you know, is the start point of our health and how we manage our health. And people and consumers and professionals are recognizing that. And I think the other thing is the, the approach we bring to the evaluation of dietary benefits is becoming a lot more rigorous and looks a lot more like the way we approach medicine. Unfortunately, medical training hasn't quite caught up with this holistic understanding, and most doctors aren't receiving enough education about human nutrition. This is a problem that many are working to remedy. Here's Dr. Petra Klassen, a scientific advisor at Nestle. The education of, um, in the medical community in nutrition is at a global scale limited. However, there are conditions which are associated with nutrition where indeed additional information and education will definitely be helpful. We do know that um, nutrition-related aspects of health are often treated, for example, by the medical community. However, their training in nutrition is relatively, uh, is relatively limited. So there is an extreme gap in terms of the nutrition knowledge via its educational materials and also the scientific information can help uh, towards that gap. For example, we have continuing medical education, which is accredited, for example, at the uh, European uh, level. And we also have these materials uh, in, accredited in other countries like the U.S. And we see that uh, these nutritional continuing medical education uh, uh, programs have a lot of traction. One fairly straightforward way that this lack of nutrition knowledge in the medical community manifests itself is in what and how patients in hospitals are fed. Here's Dr. Rosemary Riley, Senior Manager of Science Programs for the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a, a fair amount of, of hospital malnutrition that takes place, and everyone says, oh, 
malnutrition. You know, they don't really understand it. You know, they might think of people who really have no access to food or they think of third world countries. But you don't have to live in those kinds of environments to be malnourished. You know, a lot of times people go to the hospital and they're put on NPO. So they're not allowed to have anything to eat or drink because they're going to have a test. And then they get back from the test and, you know, they don't feel very good, so nobody feeds them. Um, Or we know that, you know, the tray is delivered, but it's sitting across the room. Or they're slouched in their bed and they can't reach their food. So obviously people have some very complicated medical problems, but if you don't feed them, it's unlikely they're going to get better. Nutrition, along with a, a, a great consortium of other organizations, have, have created a, a program called the Alliance to Advance Patient Nutrition. It's all the big players in the hospital. So it's the, uh, the Academy of Medical Search Nurses, and then the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and then the Society for Hospital Medicine. So we've got these organizations together to really address and create this culture of nutrition within the hospital. Programs like this could be seen as addressing a weakness in the way medicine is traditionally taught and practiced in the modern world. Targeting specific infections or malignancies, while sometimes not paying enough attention to a patient's overall wellness. Here's Dr. Takeshi Kimura from the Japanese food company Ajinomoto. Well, I think uh, in the past, for instance, uh, pharmaceuticals basically are there to cure disease. However, I think, I think one important thing is how to maintain health so that uh, uh, you don't get disease or you have less likelihood of getting disease. So this might mean improving your immune system or, you know, uh, making sure that you have enough nutrition so you don't, you're not wasted and so on. I think uh, nutrition in the past has been just uh, focusing on the bare necessity, shall we say, what is required. But I think uh, there's a whole other angle of nutrition in terms of optimizing performance. This lack of holistic care is a contributing factor to a serious problem among the elderly in the United States. People are living longer and longer, but their quality of life often isn't keeping pace. Here's Dr. Derek Yak, Senior Vice President of the Vitality Institute. Generally, the health of Americans has been slowly and steadily improving in terms of life expectancy but slowly and steadily deteriorating in terms of years lived. Um, So the quality of life of people, um, as they are aging, if your measure of progress is life expectancy, things are getting better in America. If your measure of progress is years lived with a disability or years lived in ill health, that is starting to creep up. And that is very worrying. There are parts of the world where aging and increased disability are not going up in parallel. Um, so people are aging more healthily. So we, we don't need to think it's inevitable that all 90-year-olds a few years from now will be in poor health. Chronic poor health among the elderly can be traced to all kinds of lifestyle issues, but it is also absolutely connected to nutrition. And one pervasive nutritional issue among older people worldwide is lack of protein in the diet. Here's Dr. Kimura again. Yes, I think it's been increasingly shown that uh, uh, many aged people probably do not take enough protein, and that can lead to muscle wastage as well as uh, you know uh, 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 frailty of bones, for instance, and uh, that can you know lead to real sort of disabilities. 
Getting enough protein to people who are lacking it can be a tricky business, though, largely because the most traditional sources of complete proteins, meat, fish, and eggs, are much more expensive to produce, transport, and store than foods made from plant sources. Here's Dr. Stuart Craig, Director of Scientific and Regulatory Affairs for the Nutrition and Health Division of DuPont, a company that's putting a lot of energy into developing new and better sources of protein. So the opportunity we see is what, what uh, innovations can be developed around um, novel sources of protein, particularly plant-based protein, which are, are much less impactful on the environment, much more sustainable solutions, require a lot less uh, energy input, a lot less um, water and land use, arable land use, much, much lower carbon footprint. Protein supply is a particularly interesting and complex area of investigation in the nutrition science community right now. You can learn much more about it in a previous episode of the podcast entitled The Problem with Protein. For now, suffice to say that it's a question many companies and organizations are working hard to find new answers to. One area DuPont has been exploring avidly is the development and application of textured soy, a product made from soybeans that can mimic the taste and texture of meat and so be used to extend or even replace animal-sourced food products. So it's basically isolating the protein and then physically manipulating it to give it a texture uh, close to what uh, consumers want, which, which is closer to what animal protein is like. It's, it's the magic of food science, basically. Knowing the basic nature of proteins and how they can be physically formed into fibers uh, and the food science piece, which is partly that, but also, um, you know, what's it going to taste like? <laughs> uh, what's its shelf life going to be? How is it going to you know, so interact with other components in, in the final product that you make? Which may, may require some real, really good understanding of food engineering, uh, because it's one thing to make it in the lab, but it's another, can you do it? in a pilot scale, and then ultimately can you do it in a production scale? And it's always uh, unexpected uh, issues that you will face in that scale-up process. Can it be done uh, economically? Is it going to t take a tremendous amount of energy to do, or a tremendous amount of water to do it? So it takes multiple disciplines to get you to that point. but. I think it shows the, ing the ingenuity of industry and it, it takes collaboration, working uh, often with universities to do some of that basic type of research. There are many more innovations that can be developed going forward uh, for sustainable protein uh, solutions. In parallel to this work on protein supply, many are also researching additional benefits that seem to come from having ample dietary supply of amino acids, which are the chemical building blocks of proteins. A leader in this field has been Ajinomoto. Here's Dr. Kimura again telling more. Uh, we have been studying amino acids, uh, researching amino acids, both production and uh, utilization for a long time. So uh, we have many amino acid supplements, uh, people doing sports, for instance. It's been found that certain amino acids uh, get depleted after exercise and that if you don't replenish them, your muscles start breaking down. So I think we athletes are finding that if you take the amino acids, then they don't uh, feel the uh, pain after exercise as much, so they can train harder. Amino acid research is also finding different ways of addressing the problem with protein production. 
A particular amino acid, lysine, is often missing from the feed provided to commercial livestock, so adding it can increase yield and possibly help mitigate the amount of resources used while raising these animals. So many of the livestock animals are fed on corn as the main source of the energy, basically, uh, main, main food. But the corn is uh, notoriously low in the amino acid lysine, which is an essential amino acid. So if you don't get enough of the lysine, even though you may be eating a lot of corn, you know, that doesn't uh, give you any um, muscle buildup, basically. So uh, muscle buildup basically means uh, growth, really, so. Uh, so uh, by supplementing the corn with the lysine, for instance, uh, uh, you know, that allows the animal to utilize the, their feed uh, much more efficiently and therefore grow much quicker. And this has been a big business, uh, actually, uh, around the world, actually. Uh, but one problem has been that uh, this has mainly been for uh, chickens and pigs because, uh, as you know, cows uh, have uh, poor stomachs. And uh, the first stomach, the rumen, is full of the bacteria to digest cellulose. So if you give the amino acid to the cow straight, then basically the bacteria eat it all up so it doesn't get to the cows. So recently uh, we managed to uh, uh, protect the amino acids. So they have these pellets uh, containing amino acids that can bypass the first stomach and therefore give nutrition to the cows. And we have been finding that... Uh, for instance, in dairy cows, this can increase milk production temperature. Perhaps most excitingly, amino acid research seems to have led to a new way of identifying an individual person's risk for certain forms of cancer. The initial concept was the cancer cells are known to have different metabolism. So we were hoping that, you know, that difference in metabolism will be picked up through the blood. However, we're finding that the even early cancers, uh, uh, even really tiny, you know, early cancers uh, uh, affect the metabolism so that we, we can pick up signals in terms of changes in amino acid levels. So uh, the cancer cell is probably doing something, not just the, the effect of its own metabolism, but I think it's recruiting nutrients from other parts of the body, basically, to grow. All of these avenues of research, and the ones that we heard about in the previous episode, could be said to be headed in the same direction. How can we use nutrition science to make people healthier, happier, and more productive? As we mentioned in the last episode, there's actually quite a lot of consensus about what needs to be done. Here's Dr. Manfred Eggersdorfer from the nutrition company DSM speaking about a booklet that his company published called The Road to Good Nutrition that attempts to codify this consensus. So the book, The Road to Good Nutrition, brings together the thinking of the world experts uh, on this subject, each of whom, whom addresses from their uh, specialist uh, perspective the question how to improve the nutrition status uh, of the world as a whole. It is showing uh, examples which worked already and uh, what is the way forward with the experts from all over the world. All of them brought in their experience, their competence, and uh, to provide a way forward. Appropriate policies are required. Appropriate actions are required. The momentum has to be maintained. One of the key reasons that the Sackler Institute provides a meeting place for all the various players in the nutrition world, industry as well as academia, philanthropy as well as government, 
is that many are now coming to the idea that this momentum will only be maintained to the point that it can carry us through to the next breakthrough if we argue for change not just on humanitarian grounds, but also economic ones. When people eat better, they are more healthy, and having fewer sick people saves money. Here's Dr. Riley again, talking about how she and her group at Abbott are applying this kind of thinking to the problem we began this episode with, improving nutrition in hospitals. Uh, there's, there is a number of different kinds of research out there, but we identified some top health economists who, who uh, we got in, interested in looking at nutrition. Uh, they're from the University of Southern California and Stanford, University of Chicago, and a particular group called Precision Health Economics. And they um, have done some retrospective analysis of data from large hospital systems. And that what they discovered is that patients who received oral nutrition supplements when they were in the hospital uh, had shorter length of stay, had um, a decrease in healthcare costs for that time they're in the hospital of $3,000, and also they had less likely readmission. Demonstrating that nutrition makes a difference in terms of reducing readmissions, length of stay, all those other things, is really finally hitting a sweet spot and people are listening and waking up to that, the power of nutrition for these kinds of patients. This kind of nutrition economics can be applied far beyond the walls of hospitals, though. Here's Dr. Yak again from the Vitality Institute. There's a big debate out there whether what is inevitable in terms of um, the trends in the burden of disease, and we're talking about death, disease, and disability. Um, within the workplace, there's a big debate around how effective can a workplace health program be given that people come in with a certain level of risk. So what we're looking at is taking the data on um, the burden of disease in the workplace, looking at what works and what doesn't work within the workplace specifically, and trying to calculate what percentage of the total burden can we prevent. Our early estimates are around one-fifth. So we think that we could reduce, the, and that's on the cost side, the costs of healthcare within the working age population by at least a fifth for putting in place better tobacco diet activity um, and um, adherence programs. Now that may not sound like a huge amount, and it's certainly less than what many out there, out there are saying, of why can't you do 50% or 75%, but we think it's realistic and it's based on the evidence. But we, step one is quantifying today what proportion of the burden is preventable. So we'll be looking at what are the levels of obesity in the workplace? What are the smoking levels? And for each of those, start saying, if we applied the best that we know in terms of prevention, how low could we get? And so, as we saw in the previous episode, improving nutrition for everyone isn't just good philanthropy. It's good science, good government, good public health policy, and good business, too. This podcast has been a production of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and Science and the City, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition and nutritionresearchagenda.org. We welcome your comments about this or any Science and the City program to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.